And Lord, this morning, as we dive more into Mark, the gospel, um, as Mike comes up here to preach, I pray that our hearts would be soft and receptive to your word, um, recognizing it as, as your word and your authority. Uh, would you find humble and willing, soft hearts this morning? We're asking your name. Amen. <laughs> Watch your step. Uh, well, if you don't know me, my name is BJ. I'm one of the staff pastors here. Um, and uh, this morning, I'm just going to read a little bit. Mike's asked if I would read a little bit um, of scripture over us this morning to prepare our hearts for the passage that he's going to teach on. Um, and I want to set the stage a little bit for this one. Um, I want to read this fairly slow. I want you guys to picture the room that this story is in. Picture the circle of individuals. And picture the seat. Picture the seat. Much like um, the classic image of a grandpa today in America, when a rabbi sat down in a seat, you were going to learn something he's going to teach. This is from Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. Because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. These are Jesus' words. Thanks, BJ. Good morning again. It's me again, but I'm just in a different spot. You know, it's funny. Uh, did you catch his veiled threat? BJ's, not Jesus's. Um, that you like walked over, he's like, you watch your step, Mike. <sighs> it's heavy stuff. Noted. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10 this morning. You might have noticed that our reading uh, came from Mark chapter 9, and I thought that that was important to see that how recently in the text, Jesus focused his disciples on what really matters, set their priorities straight, and said, this is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, and you shouldn't be arguing about who's the greatest. You should be thinking like a little child. You should see yourself as a child who Jesus himself says is not so insignificant and so this morning, as we continue our study, we're in Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And this is a story that many of us know well, where Jesus is going to bless children. And as we look for correction and instruction and encouragement and wisdom from the word of God, I want to remind all of you, as I did last week, that Jesus is on his journey to the cross. He's left the northern region of Galilee. He's heading south. He's now in the region of Transjordan or Perea. 
and he's making his way towards Jerusalem for the final, the final stanza, if you will, of his life. Within the situations that we're going to study that lead up to his death, Jesus takes time to reveal to those around him and to us the divine purpose for humanity, and he reveals its true value to society. Jesus is teaching important lessons all along the way. In fact, chapter 10 began with it saying, Jesus came to this region across the Jordan, and the crowd showed up, and what did he do? He wasn't so busy with thinking about the cross. He wasn't so preoccupied with the weight of what was coming for him. He takes time, and he begins to teach the people. He starts to minister to the crowds that have gathered. And so last week, in those verses that we studied, verses 1 through 12 of Mark 10, we studied the first part of what I believe is the Lord's ideal for the family by looking at marriage. Oftentimes we'll get caught up in the titles in our Bible and it talks about the question of divorce. Jesus answered the question of divorce by pointing us back to what marriage was intended to be from the very beginning. He took us back to Genesis and he took the crowd to school with it. And so now this morning we're going to see Jesus and his heart for children in verses 13 through 16. Living life as it was designed to be lived is seen no clearer then looking at the words and the life of Jesus. If you want to know how to live godly, how to live a fulfilled life, seeking to walk like Christ, being empowered by him to do so is the answer. We must be filled with the Spirit and walk in the way that he walked. In fact, Scripture says that we should be molded into the image of Christ. And Paul said that we shouldn't be molded into the image of the world in Romans 12. And so when we look at Jesus, our longing as we look at him in scriptures, I just want to be like him. I want to think like him. And I, I, I think that we get that. But a lot of times, applicationally, operationally, we fail, don't we? And so we need to recalibrate. We need to reset. We need to be brought back to what Jesus actually did. And we need to remember this as we begin our, our study this morning. Jesus walked in the Spirit. Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. You're like, well, that's part of the Godhead. That makes sense. Yes, and he put his Spirit in you and I, the church, so that we would do the same. As Paul says in Galatians 5.16, thank you, Courtney, as it says in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. How many of us are carrying out the desire of the flesh because we're not walking in the Spirit? Any of you flushed out this week? Oh, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but I will. I was like, no, I'm not going to raise my hand. I was perfectly spiritual this week. I never thought anything bad, did anything bad, or yelled at my children. You guys, walk by the Spirit. Let Him guide your life. It sounds easy enough, but it's not. We're in a daily battle against our flesh, aren't we? We study and meditate upon the scriptures because we agree with Paul as he reminded the church in Corinth about Israel's past. And when we read the Old Testament, we see all of these warnings. We see all of these stories that are like, do you see how bad it works out for those who disobey God? All throughout the Old Testament, it's like, do you want to know what disobedience to God looks like? Look at Israel, right? And it's not a pretty picture. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 through 12, as he's speaking to the church, he points back to Israel and he says, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Snakes, people! But it says this, sorry, if you know me and snakes, you know that we don't hang. 
says, and don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. I don't want to be around the destroyer either. Verse 11 says this, these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. And he says this in verse 12, and this is so important. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Do you notice that his warning goes out to those who think they're fine? Who think that they're standing on two feet? No, everything's good right now. Heads up. There's probably something just ahead. Watch your feet. Be prepared. And so we look to the word of God for encouragement and direction. As Paul points out, he says the word of God is to instruct us. The examples of scripture will point out the parts of our lives that aren't congruent. That's right, a mathematical term. That aren't congruent with the Lord's heart and his mind. Doing so ought to make us aware of the steps that we're taking. It ought to create an awareness that when we're standing, we should watch our feet. To consider that those of us who think we're doing just fine and standing firmly could be close to stumbling. Are we testing the Lord? By the way, that's where Paul goes in the rest of that passage in in, uh, 1 Corinthians. Are we testing the Lord? Are we grumbling against him because he isn't doing things our way, just like the Israelites did? Throughout all those examples, they didn't like what God was doing. They liked what the world was doing on the outside of the walls. And so they started following after those ways. Are we grumbling against him because he isn't doing things the way I want? I want to do it my way, right? By the way, that's a horrible song. BJ and I were sitting, like, listening to old classic songs in the office one day, and he's like, do you ever listen to the words of my way? And we're, like, listening to him going, this is horrible. Like, I don't want to do it my way. Or the highway. Are we consciously watching our footing, making sure that Jesus' priorities are ours? Are his priorities ours? The disciples were often being taught by Jesus how to prioritize. Often. Nope, 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 nope. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Or no, this isn't okay. I'm thrilling a little one over here, and it's really hard for me right now. There's a little baby that's just grinning at me. You guys, here in our text this morning, they will attempt to prevent little babies from being brought to Jesus. (laughs) You know what's awesome? I hope that we feel that way. I hope that that's the attitude that we have about little ones, especially in our church, that we love them, that we welcome them. But oftentimes our priorities are not them. Oftentimes our priorities are what will engage more people. I've been told this recently that you know, you need to understand your demographics if you're ch- you want your church to grow financially. And I said, well, we don't have any money. We're just a bunch of young adults. <laughs> That's not true. It's not true. I think we're pretty sprinkling with intergenerational, but we do have, comparatively speaking, a very large young adult population in this church. Put your hands in the yay. Let me see you guys. Woo! There they are. <laughs> There's some over here too. But here's the thing, you guys. What did Jesus prioritize? Did he prioritize what sells? Did he prioritize what would make his ministry a little bit more financially fluid? What did he prioritize? What was important to him? You see, the disciples often made the classic mistake that we make. Instead of walking with Jesus, being led by him, they tried to prioritize for him. They tried to set those priorities for Jesus and say, no, 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 no. The Lord, he's so funny. He doesn't really know what he's doing. We do. Right? You're like, I would never 
take a very, very honest and sober look at your life. Odds are every single one of us is trying to set God's priorities for him in some way. And so this is a sobering text. It's an awakening text. Even before we delve into the scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, are we an extension of God's blessing, enabling others to know Jesus in whatever way we can, laying our lives down, living sacrifices? One person told me one time, the problem with a living sacrifice is it's always trying to get off the altar. Right? Are we looking for ways to lay our lives down or are we not prioritizing things the way that Jesus did, the way that he's called us to, and are we trying to make our own way? Am I trying to do things my own way? Could our priorities currently in our hearts and minds hinder the work of the Holy Spirit? Am I stopping him? And all the while saying, Lord, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this for me? And he's like, well, the problem is you. Gently, lovingly, Because we love to blame others. It's your fault this isn't happening. If this situation wasn't happening, if only I had, and God says, what about you? What's going on inside of you? Have we bought into what the world says is important rather than what Jesus says is important? As our focus this morning will be on Christ, little children get brought into the spotlight. And I just want us to look at that and learn the specific lesson and also the broader lesson that this will teach us. One, do we love children? Do we love little ones the way that Jesus does? And two, where are my priorities at in life? What's the standard that I'm using to set this as? And as we look at little children, boy, I tell you what, if we prioritize little ones who are deemed less significant by the world, If we start prioritizing them and loving on them, we learn a lot about being lowly, humble servants. And I think we need to remember what the doctor said. That wise doctor, Seuss. And he said, a person's a person no matter how small. Let's look at the text. My prayer is, as Paul said, that the examples of the disciples would lend instruction for us and thereby we would be encouraged. It's a short section. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. It says, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. As best as you can, picture that. Picture Jesus holding kids and blessing them. We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as we get into the text. As the situation begins to unfold in verse 13, it begins really sweetly. This is a really sweet situation. Is Jesus likely still in the house that is referenced in the verses prior? is sitting there, these people just start coming in, they're bringing their children to him. And, and it wasn't uncommon at all. Often people would bring their children and be blessed by a rabbi or a great man who was a speaker and a teacher. And how much more beautiful is it to see these little children being brought in and handed to Jesus himself? Can you imagine being one of those kids that was brought to Jesus himself and prayed over, blessed by him? 
to have him lay his hands on you. And the word used for touch in text here is hapto. It's the same word that is used throughout the Gospels when Jesus would touch and heal somebody. Hapto, he would touch them. He put his hands on them. He was doing the same thing. He was touching these children and blessing them. He was being intimate and caregiving for them. You go down the nursery and you see the gals walking around with the little babies. I got to hold a little baby in the church last week who was seven pounds. Made me remember my kids, you know, and they lay right here. And now they're bigger than I am. I still try to. They won't let me hold them like that anymore. But you guys, it's just a, it's such a gentle, sensitive and caring picture to see our Lord holding these children. And so parents or possibly siblings are bringing these kids to Jesus. And there's something fascinating that Luke adds in his parallel account in Luke 18, 15. It says that people were bringing infants to him. The word that's used for this situation is infants, small babies, little ones. It says so that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. It's the same situation, but Luke gives us a little bit more detail. These were little, little babies. Maybe not all of them, but at least some of them are tiny, and they're being brought to him. Very tender view of Jesus. It's just so precious. I love it. I can't imagine what it would be like. And I'm not making fun of it. It's beautiful. I love it. These families are bringing their babies, and Jesus is there, and it's this beautiful situation. Enter the disciples. Stop it. Get back, right? Don't give him the children. You know, that's not, and I, I don't even know if they were mean or others. No, 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 no. That's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're doing. I don't know the way that they did it, but they rebuked them. They stopped them. They told them that they were wrong for doing this. Scolded them for bringing children to Jesus. Now, I don't believe that the disciples just really didn't like kids. I don't believe that. I don't think that they were like predetermined to not like children at all. The truth of it is we don't know what motivated them to do this but we do know that even if their intentions were so honorable as to prevent Jesus from a needless distraction or interruption, let's give them the utmost benefit of the doubt. This wasn't traditional. It shouldn't have, I mean, it was kind of traditional. They bring kids to these teachers. So maybe, maybe they just didn't want Jesus to be distracted. Maybe it was dinner time. I mean, it doesn't say that. But let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. And say maybe, that, maybe it was just a, a tough situation to be in. Even then... They were spiritually insensitive. Even then, they misunderstood the heart of Jesus. And no matter what, their action in doing this brought something out of the Lord that was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and perfectly correct for the moment. And here's what it was. He was indignant. It says in verse 14, when Jesus saw what they were doing, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is. Don't stop them. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Why are you stopping these kids? This is the only time in the gospels where Jesus is noted as being indignant. Even when he interacted with the Pharisees, even when he interacted with Herod, Jesus becomes indignant with his disciples. This anger is only referred to one time. And it's here with the disciples. It describes strong anger. And it's when children are being prevented from coming to him. 
Jesus righteously was very angry. And this is what intrigued me so much about this passage. Of all the things the writers of the gospel saw Jesus respond to, this is the strongest wording for his anger used. I think that should cause us to stop. That should cause us to consider how important this situation is to the Lord and whether it's important to us. This involves preventing the opportunity for little children, little babies, being brought to him. The disciples were holding back kingdom people from the king. Jesus said this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. To come to the Lord in this way. And they were preventing his people from being brought to him. From being blessed by him. I think there's two lessons Jesus teaches us here that we have to retain from this text. It's a physical lesson and a spiritual lesson. The physical lesson is this. Little children are welcomed loved and valued by jesus and the second is a spiritual lesson the simplicity of childlike faith and dependence is essential for salvation we need to learn both these lessons if we're going to grasp even just the beginnings of what jesus is doing here the physical lesson that little children are loved and valued by jesus it may seem a little basic of course jesus loved the little children all the children right He sang that song in Sunday school. Maybe they're singing it this morning. It's true. He does love the little children. Especially after reading this text, we would never argue that Jesus doesn't love babies. It's there in the text. It's easy. That's an easy thing to argue. The physical mistake the disciples made betrayed a spiritual misunderstanding. If we rightly understand that our salvation has been given to us as God's children by grace through faith, then we must embrace the truth that children in their receptivity and dependence exemplify the characteristics of those who possess God's kingdom. We actually learn something from them. How many of us as parents are learning from our kids? Learning spiritual lessons from our children. And, and not, not learning what not to do, Right? It's easy to look at your kids when they're throwing a tiff and be like, well, I don't want to be like that. It's like, they're doing it because they're like you, right? Our kids throw fits. Our kids act the way they are because they have me in them, not because there's some alien race that I birthed, right? Sorry, babe, that you birthed. But like, and depending on how naughty they're being that day, it's really your fault, not mine. But, ooh, I'm going to pay for this one later. You guys, if we rightly understand that salvation's been given to us as God's children by grace through faith, we embrace this truth that children exemplify a very important kingdom characteristic to us. We can learn from who they are, from how they interact with us, if we would only take time to do so. Not only do children matter to God, but they remind and teach us this, this valuable lesson Paul Tripp uh, has written many good books. He wrote a book called Dangerous Calling uh, for Pastors in Ministry. And he entitled a chapter of the book he wrote, Big Theological Brains and Heart Disease, that applied to the same people. And in the chapter, he examines the tragic outcome of many young seminary students who gain loads of theological knowledge in seminary and see the understanding of the content and theology of the Word of God as the end goal that gaining all this knowledge is really what they were there to do, to fill their heads up with all this knowledge, right? But the intended end of studying the Word of God is to become 
God-honoring people whose lives are shaped by worshiping him. That's the intention of studying the word of God. Not to have a bunch of knowledge, but to be shaped and molded into his image. And Tripp rightly states in that chapter, the ultimate purpose of the word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. When we allow the beauty of the character and life of Jesus to restore our vision, we not only learn solid theology, we learn how to love humanity. We learn how to love the little children as well. We start to value every life. And we start applying what we've learned from the Lord and his word to ourselves so that we can then teach it to others. Children are a blessed reminder of receptivity and dependence. They're beautiful and loved by God. And they must be loved by us. We're still talking about the physical. Like this is the practical lesson that's being learned here. We're to care for kids, lead them, discipline and instruct them, and through all of these things, love them in the name of Jesus. Amen? Our kids' ministry should be of no less importance than what happens in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. And I have to ask this question because it's important. Does Jesus love babies out of the womb more than babies who are growing in it? Does this love for little ones only begin when they are born, or does it go farther back? In Jeremiah chapter 1, the prophet says something profound. He says this, as God is speaking to him, he's listening. It's actually Jeremiah listening, not speaking. And God says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was chosen before he was even begun. God had chosen him. And David writes in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, this, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I've been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And if we have a theological belief that the word of God is absolutely true and absolutely right in every way, it is not an overreach or an overstatement to say that we must love children within the womb as much as we love them after they're born. We have to love them just as much inside that womb as outside. If our Heavenly Father saw us before we were formed and knew us before we were conceived, then there's no part of that process where we as finite human beings are permitted to step in and stop the active formation of another human being by the very hand of God. I am not going to get in the middle of that process at all because if that's something that God is doing, then he needs to be the one who's responsible for it. And I believe, church, 100% that abortion is wrong. And I'm not ashamed to say it. And I'm heartbroken by what it's done to so many people's lives. And for those who have been affected by it, for those who have experienced the loss, have been through abortion, there is grace. For those who have had one of those whose lives have been marred by this, there is grace, there's forgiveness, and there's healing in Jesus. I want to remind you guys as the church that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's forgiveness. If this is something that's been a part of your past, 
you are welcome here and there is healing here. But let us not become weak when it comes to the lives of children because Jesus said they matter. Because his word says that this matters. The word of God makes it clear. I think we need to speak that truth with gentleness and kindness and with conviction. It gives us no right to rage out against people who are grown and mistreat them. It means that we need to speak on behalf of those who have no voice for themselves. At least not yet. Guys, I think as we love children outside the womb just as much as those who are inside, that we need to address something in the church that's important, and that's opening our homes and lives to those who are in need extends far beyond. If we care about infants growing in the womb, we should care about people who need our help outside. And that means that as kids in our community don't have homes, as kids in our community, and if you want to know more about this, talk to some of our foster families here in the church. Talk to people who have adopted and brought kids in. If you think that this problem is anywhere near solved, very, very wrong. We need to be, as a church, engaged with bringing children into our homes, caring for them. Because here's the truth of the, of the matter. I want them in the homes of people in this church who are loving Jesus and going to raise them to know him. Why is the church stepping back when kids need to be taken care of? And if you want to get involved, we have ways for you to do that. We have lots of people in this church that have adopted children, raised them. They're in the process as they're fostering to adopt them. And I just want to challenge you, have a conversation with them and see how passionate about it they are. These kids are some of the greatest blessings that the Lord has ever given to them. And it's a challenge and it's hard and it's difficult, but it's worth every effort. Because Jesus welcomed them, so must we. Maybe it's in a role of supporting people to do it, caring for them, caring for their needs. But I think we have to address this as the church and see, are we to be accused when it comes to caring for little ones in our community? Have we done enough? And I leave that question with you and encourage you to allow the Spirit to give you the answer. If we really want to know how much the little children of our community matter to Jesus, I don't think we have to look any further than Mark 10, 14. Are we like the disciples and we're seeing children as a distraction, as a problem, as a tapping our resources, not financially viable, disrupting of our plan for our life? Or are we looking for ways to, well, to be exactly what pure and undefiled religion is, looking after orphans and widows in their distress? Little children are welcomed and loved by Jesus. That's the physical lesson and the spiritual lesson. The simplicity of childlike faith and dependence is essential for salvation. Maybe we should think more like them. Jesus said, truly, I tell you in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The point of comparison is not so much the innocence and humility of children. It's the fact that children are unselfconscious, that they're receptive and content to be dependent on others' care and provision. They're contented to be that way. It's in such a spirit that the kingdom of heaven must be received. It's a gift from God, not an achievement on the part of man. It must be simply accepted by grace through faith in as much as it can never be deserved. And this is the spiritual lesson. And the physical reaction of the disciples reveals a misunderstanding deeper within them as Jesus is always faithful to do. He goes right for the heart. 
Here's what you need to learn to understand why this is significant. Not only that these children be allowed to come to him physically, but that we understand spiritually how to trust in him, how to believe in him, that I'm not going to achieve this, that I have to come to him dependently. Obviously, what the disciples physically did angered him. However, he doesn't treat the symptoms. Jesus goes for the virus. Jesus isn't content to just say what you're doing is wrong and leave it there. He shows them spiritually what's wrong. You misunderstand the kingdom of God and how it works. These babies mattered and are loved by Jesus just as much as the disciples are loved by him. And they need blessing just as much as anyone. That's exactly what Jesus does. Look at verse 16. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and it says he blessed them. Alfred Edersheim wrote this. He said, and so, speaking of Jesus in this situation, he folded these little ones in his arms, put his hands upon them and blessed them, and thus forever consecrated that child life which a parent's love and faith brought to him. His words made me pause as I read them because I thought about how Jesus blesses these children in this situation and how he's consecrating this kid's life. As he's blessing them, the word used for blessed is an intensive compound form of blessing. It's an intensive compound, which means especially it's of dearest friends and relations at meeting and parting. You could say that he blessed the children with all of his might. And that made me stop. And think about how we bless little ones around us. How we care for them. You know, you'll be hard-pressed to not hear it said in a church at some point, if you've attended a church, and I'm sure most of us have for long seasons of time, what's one of the first things that the church always asks for people to help with? Children's ministry. And there's a reason for that. There's some logistical reasons for that. There's burnout sometimes because little ones are difficult. But I'd say some of it's on the church for scheduling children's ministry workers six months in a row without a break. That's on the church. We try and go for a four, four to six week rotation with our kids' ministry workers. But they're, they're on what? One every four? One every four? We want to get to one every six. So the, the majority of your time you're here, but when you're down there with the kids, it's refreshing and encouraging. And I just think that people who are in a good mood are good for kids. You know, <laughs> you be quiet, eat your goldfish. That's not what this is about. <laughs> but like, you guys, we had a really fun conversation about goldfish last night. It was awesome. You guys, we need to think about this carefully. The kids' ministry of Transform is not a lesser ministry. It's a top priority. Amen? Our leadership will agree. Our kids' ministry is a top priority because we recognize that if Jesus loves these little children, then we need to love them in the same way. I want you to know this as we minister to seniors in our congregation, that they're a top priority as well. Why? Because God hasn't stopped loving them or using them either. And we need to learn and grow from their wisdom. We need to care for them as they enter new phases of life. You're like, well, they can't all be top priority. Sure can. Loving people in the name of Christ is the priority. All the way down into inside the womb to the end where I stand up here in front of a group of their friends and family and talk about the life that they lived well. From beginning to end. You could call it a holistic approach to ministry. Every person matters. Every person deserves 
to know that their Savior loves them and died for them. And they need to see it in the words we say, in the actions we take, and in the lives that we live. If God loves people like this, from the smallest and youngest to the largest and the oldest, we should too. It should matter to us too. Church, I want to challenge you. And worship team, you can come on up. Look at the scriptures carefully. Look at the way that Jesus interacts with others. Look at who he prioritizes. A lot of times we want to take a group and say, well, he prioritized this group more. Oftentimes when you see those groups called out in scripture, it's because they were being marginalized by society at that time. So let me ask you this. Who is not being told in our generation about the love of Jesus for them? If you think of somebody in your mind, if you think of a people group in your mind, you think of another nation like our missionaries in Thailand who are reaching the unreached in southern Thailand where 98% of the people there are Buddhists. They're there preaching the gospel to those communities. Because they said those are the people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus. But right here, or whether it's far away, who are the people that are not hearing about the love of God for them through Jesus Christ, his son? Go to them. Care for them. Minister to them. We need to take action with this because Jesus did not withhold blessing from people. In fact, he disagreed with those closest to him about how they were handling it. I hope that we don't land there. So let's examine ourselves. Let's search our own hearts. Who are the people that I have around me right now that I'm not loving and caring for? And let's adjust that because we want to be like Christ. Lord, I pray that as we worship you in this time, it will be a time of just expressing our love for you, thanking you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And Lord, as we sing the words of this song, Lord, I just think about how it's very sobering to consider where we were without you. And Lord, that you, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, died for us to save us. And so Lord, who are those around us that we're just not even aware of? I think of like the the people that, that oftentimes I just take for granted. I think, Lord, of how often, even in our own homes, and I'm to blame for this, Lord, you know, I give something priority besides my kids. I get distracted with things that seem like they're important, tasks, programs, policy, whatever it is. And Lord, my children are right there just ready to have a conversation, ready to be told not only how much you love them, but how much I love them. And so, Lord, bring the reality of this passage into our homes. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave it here, but that we would take it seriously. And Lord, if some here, maybe some need to serve in kids' ministry. Maybe some of us need to step up and just engage with this. Maybe some of us need to get plugged into some kind of a ministry because we've been sitting back too long. Engage us with people. Engage us with each other because you love the creation that you made. You love those who bear your image on this planet. And Lord, I pray that we would too. Would you show us how to have your heart? Would you use your words in this text to calibrate us? What is the kingdom of God like? 
Who are those that matter in the kingdom of God? And as we think about the disciples arguing about who is going to be the greatest, Jesus, you spoke not only to them, but right to us. The least is the greatest. Jesus, you would go on in the upper room, not far from this point that we're at in this text, and you would wash feet. You would take the position of the lowest servant in the house and wash your disciples' feet. You even washed Judas's feet. So where you said, love your enemies and pray for them, you gave us a living example by washing the feet of the man who is about to betray you. We want to love like that. We want to be like you in that way. So as we humble ourselves, as we remember your great love for us, would you refresh us in your spirit to take steps forward, to not stand back, but to initiate in loving the people of this world. And Lord, we just want to take one opportunity right here this morning, hopefully one of many, to thank you for the kids of this church. Thank you for the little kids that have been born in this church, that we've been able to dedicate to you, Lord, that we get to walk alongside these families as they raise them. Lord, maybe some here, as I think about this, maybe some older generations need to invest in young parents. Give them wisdom and encouragement because they know how difficult it is to raise little ones. God, just show us how we can engage. And thank you for these kids. We love them. Would you grow our, and enlarge our hearts to love them like you do? We ask it in your name. Amen.